Hello, and welcome to Lines from Loganberry, from Loganberry Books. We are a local independent bookshop located in the historic Larchmere neighborhood of beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. With this podcast, we hope to stay connected to you as we weather the coronavirus storm together. Each week, we will help you discover new books, rave about our latest favorite reads, and check in with our friendly bookstore cat Otis to learn more about what's going on in our humble shop. For more information about Loganberry Books, visit our website at loganberrybooks.com or check our social media at Loganberry Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On today's episode, Local Voices Manager Maisha Hedden interviews three Hugo Award finalists from Journey Press, Tom Purdom, Laura Weir, and Gideon Marcus. They discuss their new books, the history of their careers, and what it means to be an independent publisher in the science fiction space. All of this and more today on Lines from Loganberry. Today, we have an amazing program for people who love science fiction. We have three Hugo finalists with us today, all of Journey Press out of San Diego, California. So today we're going to be talking with Gideon Marcus an author and also the publisher of Journey Press, Tom Purdom, who wrote I Want the Stars. And in just a few moments, we're also gonna have Laura Weir, who wrote The Eighth Key. All right, so we're gonna get started with Tom first. So let's give a little bit of background on Tom. New Haven-born, Philadelphia native, Tom Purdom exploded into science fiction scene in 1957, and he's never stopped since. His land-breaking 1964 novel, I Want the Stars, which we'll discuss today, pioneered queer themes and featured one of the first persons of color protagonists in science fiction. It was a bonafide hit, selling some 70,000 copies. Since then, Tom has written four more novels and dozens of short science fiction pieces. He continues to be regularly published in the biggest magazines of the field, including Asimov's and fantasy and science fiction. He's been a pillar of Pennsylvania's science fiction fan community for more than 60 years. So Tom, thank you so much for coming. I Want the Stars is the story of five space traveling members of the human race. They are from a utopian earth, no war, no poverty, a lush earth environment, 400 years of eternal youth, sex in utopia, is kind, polyamorous, and boundless. People literally receive everything they need for fulfillment. The five space travelers with the main character, um, Jinnerden, how do you say his name, Jinnerden? Jinnerden. Jinnerden. Jinnerden Ale. Ale. It's, I took the name from Willie Lay, who was a famous writer on rocketry and science, and the apostrophe, it's like in a lot of language, you know, you get O'Malley, it means of from, that's all. I just made it up. Okay. It sounded good, and I was wanted to say something nice about Willie Way. It, it does sound nice. So these five space travelers set off into space, and not as a part of a military mission or a scientific mission, but out of a combination of curiosity and restlessness. Light years from Earth, they encounter other humanoids, some primitive and one far more advanced. In these interactions, they struggle to uphold their utopian Earth moral codes 
of non-interference, the sanctity of life, and peace. In the afterword, Tom, you discuss the origins of I Want the Stars, especially the influence of science fiction writers in the 1950s and 60s. But you were also drafted into the United States Army in 1960 during the Vietnam era. We know many soldiers left Vietnam emotionally damaged. Soldiers in the Afghan and the Iraqi wars experience the same. And I want the stars. All the humans have mandatory weekly therapy. They even carry an emergency therapy button and have psychoactive gas to kind of zonk out when the situations are too intense. So, Tom... Tell us how your experience in war informed the mandatory therapy in your novel. Well, actually, that's a little... I was in the Army as a draftee from 59 to 61. Technically, I'm a Vietnam-era veteran, but there was, a, there was no war on. I was in the Army between the two wars, actually. Uh, I always tell people I was in the Beetle Bailey Army, uh, you know, much more like Camp Swampy than anything else. I should tell you, though, too, I'm, uh, if you don't mind my making a mother, my, I'm not a native Philadelphian. I came here when I was 18. I grew up as a military brat. My father did 25 years in the Navy. So I've had uh, a lot of odd military experience. Oh, are you a Navy? Are you a military brat, too? I am not. I am not. <laughs> oh, you were waving. To the, I see. I got yeah. Uh, so I really can't answer that question in that way. But it is this. I think people my age, I was born in 1936, and I was nine when World War II ended and the first atomic bombs had been dropped. I think we grew up with the threat of war always in the background. It wasn't, you know, oppressive, but it, that does have an effect. Being a military brat and the kind of experiences I had in the Army, they're nothing like what goes on in combat, but they, they make you aware that war has been an important aspect of human life for as far back as we know. I think that's the important thing. And did you did you think it was important for these utopian characters to have weekly therapy? Like, why did you weave it in there? Why did you say therapy itself is a... Oh, and on their space mission, they take Rosica, who is a therapist, right? They don't yeah. take, like, bones from Star Trek. They take the therapist. Well, you know, there are people, even but going back to the 1950s, who were doing that regularly. There are movie stars and so on who had regular therapists to consult with. You know, some of these details I can, you're, you're telling me about are things I've forgotten, to tell you the truth. But I, I think the way I was thinking was that uh, maintaining stability, maintaining the kind of personalities they had, does require a great deal of self-awareness. If you don't want to be violent, if you want to get along with others, you've got to understand your own feelings. And so this continual process of some kind of therapy, someone to talk to about your problem, uh, that, that would have been what I mostly had in mind, that, that, that in a civilized society, maybe that kind of thing would be very normal, that we would all do it. For me, the, po the most intense moment, and I want the stars, happened when MCASA an ambassador to a planet with three dominant political groups begs Janordan to conquer and colonize his planet in order to save his humanoid race from itself. In refusing, Janordan thinks the following. There's no room in the universe 
for people who could build powerful weapons and then couldn't control themselves enough to survive their own ingenuity. And he couldn't even tell them the terrible truth that this is the test and that in this test they were alone and success was not guaranteed. In a sense, he was saying, if you study war, you deserve your extinction. And that's really harsh. In the modern day, that obviously makes me think about climate change and CO2 emissions, where if we're going to stop it, every nation has to cooperate and we all have to agree to stop it. So tell us, Tom, what ideas of peace and cooperation are you grappling with in I Want the Stars? At the heart of it, these are some very deep questions. <laughs> At the heart of books of this is an idea that Arthur Clarke uh, suggested, which was that if we meet any aliens in the future, they will be basically peaceful. They won't be coming here to conquer us and eat us and all that. He says, to get to the point where you can build starships, you have to have acquired become a fairly peaceful species because otherwise nuclear weapons and other weapons that could be developed are so powerful that if you do not reform, if you do not get your, your, your violent impulses under control, you will destroy yourself. And so in that sense, this is the test. And it isn't that Janorden doesn't sympathize or anything. It is simply the understanding that this is something you have to work out on your own. Other people can't do it for you. And so your species is confronted with this, and it must find some way to deal with it. In a sense, this is something that runs through all my writing, which is that technology grants us great powers, but that we must learn to control those powers. And if we don't, then it's going to destroy us. There's an author whose name is Tanahosi Coates, and he is a winner of the MacArthur Fellowship and also a recipient of the National Book Award. So he's a Black writer. And he wrote a series for Black Panther for Marvel from 2016 to 2021. And one of his villains is angst. So the villain destroys armies by making them question themselves, like like taps into all their insecurities. Mm -hmm. So... Of course, when I read about the Horta inside of I Want the Stars, it made me think about angst. Now, in I Want the Stars, you call it paranoia, right? Mm -hmm. The Horta tap into everybody's paranoia. And the novel opens and closes with the Horta. So I want to know, why did you envision telepathy as a weapon yeah, well, of course, the Horta is a name that's already been taken. It got taken over by Star Trek several years later after I wrote this. So, uh, no, this is, again, I wrote a story that appeared in Galaxy that had a similar theme. The idea is very Freudian. Usually when people have written about telepathy, it's almost like it's like a telephone. I send you my thoughts and you send mine. The idea is that you also pick up the other person's unconscious thoughts. And unconscious thoughts and feelings are feelings that we are repressing because they bother us. And we may feel, I shouldn't feel that way. I shouldn't be so violent and so on. And thus, what would happen would be that when you got the, those thoughts from someone else, those feelings, you would wish to repress them. 
and you would repress them by repressing the person. And that is the idea that runs through there. Now, that's not the only way to look at telepathy, but it's an interesting one. And as I mentioned, if you, I think it's in the, that afterward, um, I got that idea from a story by Paul Anderson, in which guys, a guy has, knows there's a woman who's also a telepathist. He's the only telepathist in the world. And when they finally make contacts, they can't stand each other because they're each getting the inner thoughts of the other person that they, you know. The, or the, what, no, what they know is that the other person is getting their inner thoughts. He's adjusted to receiving other people's bad thoughts, but he can't stand the thought that she can feel it, see. So, you know, just a way of writing about telepathy. There's many ways to write about it. And also, have you considered a follow-up novel on the Horta? The Horta are really interesting. Uh, I don't know if I could. That's all there is to it. You know, if they offered me enough money, I'd give it a try. <laughs> so it's an interesting thought. Gideon, you might want to get a ghostwriter for that one, because I want more Horta, definitely. Okay, Tom, thank you so much for joining us. I know you've got um, a busy day ahead of you. So thank you. And you can log off if you please. Thank you. So much oh, well, I was going to stay around for the hour. Oh, okay. That's wonderful. Okay. Laura Weir, author of The Eighth Key. When it comes to fusing elaborate high fantasy with steamy romance, none does it better than three-time Hugo finalist Laura Weir. Her first full-length novel, The Eighth Key, will captivate as well as excite. Laura lives in sunny California with her husband, daughter, and a cat. She is currently working on a collaboration of erotic queer novellas that may be out as early as next year's holiday season. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. Really great. I loved Eighth Key. I really did. It was exquisite. Okay, so um, The Eighth Key is the story of the bard Lucian, who finds himself being trailed by Corwin, a shadow mage and a member of the Mage Guild. A few people have the power to control magic in this world, but most do not. For a long time, the mages were seen as helpers of humanity, but they live in a time of waning magic. The source of magic has dried up and the residual magic in the world is being siphoned off. Finding the titular eighth key could solve this problem. Nonetheless, the central story is the blossoming love between Lucian and Corwin. The eighth key is a fantasy romance. Okay, so Laura, I am a cisgender straight woman, yet I found the eighth key very sexy and very erotic. (laughs) So did you anticipate making a crossover romance and tell us how you made a novel sexy for both, for all gay, queer, and straight audiences. Well, um, to be honest, my target audience was always women uh, to begin with. Um, I'm very happy if gay men read the story or even if straight men read the story and find it erotic. <laughs> uh, my original audience I had in mind was women. There's been a a long tradition ever since Star Trek came out in particular of women writing erotic stories with two men for other women specifically. Most people know that from that time, women were writing Kirk slash Spock stories, Kirk and Spock involved in romantic uh, relationships. That was the beginning of of that movement. there's, There's more historical stories, but that's 
the beginning of it in the in the public consciousness in a general sense. There was a, a broad movement for it, but it was a secret movement at the time of necessity. People went to conventions and they would ask, you know, people who sold fanzines, oh, do you have any? <laughs> and they would reach under the table and get their erotic stories and they would and they would sell it to them. These days, uh, you don't have to hide quite so much anymore. Sure. It's a it's a fairly well-known subgenre of romance in that queer or male-male romance. This is not to say that men that gay men don't have romance stories as well by gay men for gay men. And that's not to say that people that women don't write for gay men, but there is a specific target audience of women uh, in, in the gay romance section as well. You are blowing open my mind. Are you telling me that the Spock Kirk romance, like in the and the fanfic, was actually kind of generated by women? Oh, most of it was generated by women. The vast majority, in fact, was generated by women. Oh wow! <laughs> I'm gonna have to revisit that whole thing. It's kind of it's very eye opening. It's kind of like twists an angle on it that I hadn't thought of before. That was sort of amazing. Yeah introduce you to some women who who were, who were of that time and and uh, and can tell you all about the history of it if you're if you're ever interested I actually am interested okay so there's a lot of trauma in gay literature and I'm thinking about you know those classics like Giovanni's room and Brokeback Mountain those come to mind there's no trauma in the eighth key as a genre, romance is a trauma-free zone. That's what it's about. Conflicts swirl around miscommunication, but not pain. And for me, one of the most lovely things about the romance between Corwin and Lucian was their consent. Like there's always consent, like step by step. So can you talk to the audience about how you created trauma-free reading in the eighth key? And maybe you can even talk about consensual sex and how, um, you know, it's uh, so, you know, that uh, the romance genre, it has a sort of back history of, I don't know, Conan the Barbarian. And like, I don't know, he jumped out of the <laughs> horde and grabbed me. And like, you know, it's like, wait, but where's all that consent? You know, so how did you make consent sexy? <laughs> oh, thank you. I, I appreciate your, your kind words a lot. Um, I think for a long time, for a long time, sex was very much something that was sort of forbidden. Women were not really allowed to enjoy sex. And so a lot of sort of old school romances had elements of forcing a woman, whether it was he captured me and took me with him and there was nothing I could do, or he gave me a drug and it made me want it and there was nothing I could do. And I, I couldn't help but enjoy myself. And I think that women to some degree and also men to some degree, found these tropes appealing for different reasons, obviously. Um, women appreciated it because it allowed them to enjoy sex without feeling guilty about it. And men enjoyed the idea because you, they would have a partner who, who couldn't really resist and who secretly wanted it, even if they said no. I think as we you know, have been developing as a society, we've come to understand that a lot of these more old school ideas about uh, sex are are kind of problematic, <laughs> but we're coming to this understanding over time that consent is and of its is in and of itself not not just something that's uh, critical and important, but itself can be a very sexy part of the process. The asking of and giving permission 
part of the process is is recognizing the other person's power and recognizing that the other person is willing to say yes, willing to, to express themselves. It's kind of something that's I think been growing over the past 20 years of, of romance and as, as our society develops. So for me, I, I came at the, at, the, at the story with the idea that I didn't want it to be a traumatic story, as you say. I, I, I really didn't want to rely on some sort of traditional misunderstandings that keep characters apart. Um, I did not want pain, as, as you say. There's some pain and there's some traumatic moments, but there's resolution. And, and joy. And I, I really enjoy, personally, stories that have a lot of joy, a lot of connection, warmth, happiness between the characters, uh, because that's what I'm looking for. When I read a story that has hurt or unhappiness, I want that to become, ultimately be resolved and, and be happy. So that, that was my attitude when I, when I went into it. I don't think you need to make it an ongoing painful thing in order to, to have happiness, you can have um, conflict and you can have sorrow um, and you can have disappointment, but in the end, you can have happiness too. And, and I don't think you need the bitterness or, or, or sharpness um, when you're writing something to share with people. <laughs> the other thing that you ed- added was, which was, um, I, I literally don't know another way to describe it except sexy. It's like, so it's sort of like in traditional gay literature, there's like fear around approaching and flirting with a person who may or may not be queer, right? And well, obviously because there could be violence, right? But I like how with the flirtation between Corwin and Lucian, it just had like more of a kind of a cat and mouse sexiness to it than like this fear that somebody was going to get hurt. I'm not even sure there's a question there. I just want to say that like, I actually really, I really enjoyed that part. Like I didn't, (laughs) it was nice. (laughs) I think a big part of that is the conception of the world as one in which there was no uh, homophobia. And that, that was another aspect that was very deliberately chosen. There are some really great stories out there, gay romance stories set in, you know, Regency times and other times where, where the homophobia in society is an element of the story that makes it a little bit exciting, makes it secret, you know, makes you have, you can't tell anybody. And there's some, there's some wonderful stories about that out there that use that as an element. And then of course, there's a lot of, as you say, more uh, traditional gay literature where it, where it's a, it's just has to be acknowledged to be quote unquote realistic. But I'm not in the business to write realistic. I'm in the business to write something that makes you feel good. And so I conceived the world as a world that doesn't have homophobia. And I conceived the world as a place where two men could hook up <laughs> and it wouldn't be a, a big deal. And there would, wouldn't be any question of, you know, if whether or not they could get married or whether or not they, you know, were in danger. Um, this is also something which is kind of an advantage of writing male-male romance. There, there's a lot of reasons, I think, why women write male-male romance, and that's a whole other conversation that, that could go on for a while. But I think one specific aspect of it is when you have two men, they are seen as being more equal. And not, not always, obviously, but there's no inherent built-in threat of violence the same way or built-in inequality. The same way that there is when you have a, a woman and a man. So if I 
written the same story with one of the characters being female, it, it would have had a different dynamic. Um, and so I, I, that's part of the reason I like writing male-male romance is because it, it makes the dynamic, it makes the uh, characters on an even playing field starting out. And then there's less difficulty with um, making their relationship very equal. Which is a perfect segue to um, my next question, which is that it seems like in fantasy, talking about power dynamics is unavoidable. Like it's like, I don't even think you can write a fantasy novel without exploring power dynamics. So in the eighth key, the power is the eight keys. Literally and figuratively, it is the source of power, which empowers the holder. It's also a democratizing power because there are some people who have a natural affinity to create magic. But even if you don't have an affinity for magic, if you are a key holder, you can generate very powerful magic. So, you know, you kind of talked about power in terms of the sexual dynamic, but can you discuss more about your thoughts about the possession, hiding, use, and dispersal of power in the eighth key? Because it all comes up. It's like, who's who should be allowed to hold a key, right? And should we even admit that a key exists? Because then somebody's going to look for it, you know? <laughs> Yeah, it's, boy, that's a big question. And it's a question I struggled with, actually. How how should the keys be managed in this world? Was the way that the mages were handling the keys, was that the right way? Was that the answer? I couldn't really come to a solid conclusion myself in the end. They're enormously powerful. They They have enormous potential for good, but they're also essentially the nuclear weapons of this world that could do enormous, have enormous destruction. So who gets to say how they're used and where? Um, and I, I mean, I, I, I try to address all of these questions in the story, or at least bring them up. And in the end, what the, the choices that the characters make, I'm not sure if they're the right choices or not, but they are, I think, consistent within the characters' experiences in the context of the story. Part of what made the novel so good is the mages aren't heroes. They're not bad guys, but they're not they're not really heroes either. I mean, I loved it that you left all kinds of questions around it. I wanted it to be satisfying in terms of the relationship and in terms of the resolution of, of the issues that were plaguing the world, but it's not the end of the world. So there will always be, it's, 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 there'll always be an ongoing story because the story doesn't, end. you know, the world doesn't end. So <laughs> spoiler alert, the world doesn't end. Sorry. <laughs> okay. So then back to kink. Um, so tell us about your next <laughs> Tell us about your next project. What are you working on now? Um, right now, um, I'm working on a, a collection of shorter pieces, erotic stories that I'm hoping to put out towards the end of the year. We'll see. And that's it's just that's my next thing because I, I wanted to have something that I could have shorter stories that I could share with people uh, as a teaser sampler so that they can they can get an idea. And eventually, I'm, I'm going to be writing more novels. Um, this is just my next step looking forward to it. Are they all going to have like a fantasy element? Or are you going to play with a bunch of different genres? What are you going to do? The, it, it's just going to be as it comes. A lot of my work is going to have fantasy or science fiction elements because I, I tend to really enjoy that. But there there will probably be some other. Uh, I'm working on one right now that's more grounded in reality. That's a story of two people who get together during the pandemic, uh, just because that was in my head and that was what came to me. 
And that's much more sort of a, a, a traditional romance, but uh, you'll definitely be seeing more stories probably in the fantastical or science fiction vein because I love those settings uh, and I love playing with them. That's great. You'll probably be seeing eventually some um, female-female romance too from me. Looking forward to that. Excellent. Excellent. So for anybody out there who loves fantasy science fiction, a little bit of encouragement to go out and get the eighth key. So if you enjoyed, and I'm getting very niche, but I am. If you enjoyed N.K. Jemison's 100,000 Kingdoms, which I think is her second best book, in my personal opinion. Obviously, the fifth season's the best, but I think 100,000 Kingdoms is her second best novel. Part of the reason why I loved that book so much is that it had a lot of queer romance, and it was very, very sexy. And any book that incorporates in mind-blowing sex is a really good novel. And so then if you enjoyed 100,000 Kingdoms, I recommend that you pick up the eighth key as well because it's a fit. Let's move on to Gideon Marcus. Okay, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Let's move on to Gideon Marcus, the publisher and finder of the both these two wonderful authors. Gideon Marcus is the founder of Journey Press, an independent publisher focused on unusual and diverse speculative fiction. Gideon Marcus has won the Serling Award and been nominated three times for the Hugo Award for his time machine project, Galactic Journey. He is also a professional space historian, member of the American Astronautical Society's History Committee. In 2019, he edited Rediscovery, Science Fiction, by women from 1958 to 1963, a seminal anthology of some of the best works of science fiction's Silver Age. His most recent work, Kitra, is a YA space adventure featuring themes of isolation, teamwork, and hope, featuring a queer protagonist of color. Gideon Marcus, Thanks so much for coming. And thank you so much for bringing all these people together. This is so much fun. Uh, you know, it's funny, just really quickly, um, you were talking about one thing you liked about uh, Eighth Key is it was a homophobia-free book. And I hadn't really thought about it, but Keetra, my book, and Tom's book, I Want the Stars, which is even more ridiculously amazing for being written in 1964, they all have that in common. They all are written with, Anyone can end up with whoever they want. And I Want the Stars has, I think it's the first depiction in science fiction of queer relationships um, positively. And, uh, and you know, they're all just sort of in this polyamorous group going around the galaxy and, and, and nothing is said of it. It's just completely natural. And it's just one of the elements of the book. And it's one of the things that made me so delighted to find Tom and pick it up. And then, of course, Keetra is very deliberately in that style as well. In fact, Keetra could almost take place in the same universe as I Want the Stars. Uh, and then, of course, Laura Ware has got that, too. So I don't know if that's going to be always a defining characteristic of Journey Press titles, but this, we're certainly starting to get a, a tag, aren't we? Yes. If Justin Timberlake brought sexy back, you're bringing sexy forward. <laughs> <laughs> I'm quoting that in our next promotion. Absolutely. Journey Press, bringing sexy <laughs> forward. So let's talk about Journey Press, even though you sort of answered it already. But why did you create Journey Press? And what niche in science fiction were you looking to fill? So Journey Press was a direct outgrowth of Galactic Journey. 
Uh, Galactic Journey, I started it in 2013, and we basically are a bunch of fans pretending to live exactly 55 years ago, day by day. And what makes Galactic Journey different from every other historical site is the fact that we are living in the moment, contextually, discussing these works as if they are modern. Of course, all the writers actually live in the 21st century, so we make sure that what we're writing is at least somewhat approachable and relevant, but we're also noting that things were approachable and relevant even back then. It's an easy sort of belief in the 21st century that stuff before a certain age is irrelevant, uh, primitive, racist, chauvinist. And the wonderful thing about the journey was finding so many women authors, finding queer authors, finding black authors, finding progressive authors like Tom Purdom in 1964, writing polyamorous queer progressive science fiction, not and incorporating two names that Trek eventually stole from his book. So that's why Journey Press had to happen, because in 2018, I met another guy who had started his own little press to resurrect a, a book by uh, Frederick Brown, another science fiction author. And I realized just how easy it is to start your own press. And then I thought, well, what would I write about? I'm like, well, I've just written about all these women science fiction writers from the late 50s, early 60s. And there's all these stories by people that are in the pre-Le Guin era. And so they've essentially been forgotten. And they shouldn't be because they wrote a lot of great stuff. And so our first project was Rediscovery Science Fiction by Women. And, and if the sales of that book are any indication that we made the right decision, um, then we made the right decision because that, that book has been extremely popular, even with the pandemic. And then I figured, well, if we can republish great people, we can also publish modern great people, especially giving voices to stories and to people who might be on the fringes, even today, of publication. You still see women talking about how men will say, well, you can't really write that, or I can't believe a woman wrote that because it's, you know, it's a male thing, or, you know, only these people should write this or whatever. And so there's a need for that kind of independent press that, that bridges the gap between the eras and really gives voice to a lot of these voices that need the voices. I also had the advantage of knowing a lot of Hugo finalists, and there's nothing better to starting your, to kickstarting a press than having some high-powered people already in your stable. I want to ask you more about rediscovery, science fiction by women, 1958 to 1963. Hadn't thought about it before this interview, but yeah, that's pre-Le Guin. Why did you feel that it was important to unearth these authors? And what did you find? Like what do you, like what like what was phenomenal that came out of that project? I picked 58 to 63 because those are the years that I had covered with Galactic Journey up to that time. So I was very familiar with the subject matter. Picking the stories was as easy as going through my articles and seeing who got four and five star stories. Uh, and and who I could get the rights from. Um, and I definitely knew I wanted to get, for instance, Roselle George Brown and Pauline Ashwell and I think Kit Reed. These were three women who were chosen in 1958. There were six nominations for best new author. And in 1958, women were three of them. And all three of these women, by the way, appear in Rediscovery. Um, and with the exception of Kit Reed, they're all pretty much forgotten. I'm, I'm very lucky. That was another reason I did this was because I happened to know Kit Reed. We were friends on Facebook and she gave me some actual personal knowledge to put in the introduction right before she passed. Um, so that, that means a lot to me. But what I discovered was that pre-Le Guin, Le Guin came on the scene in 1962. And I, this is, by the way, not a patch on Le Guin. She's great. Um, and she's great right out of the bat. Her first story, April in Paris, that came out in 1962 and amazing is one of my favorite stories. 
Uh, and it's probably one that no one's ever heard of. So I'm, I'm a hipster Le Guin liker. But when she came on the scene, there were three dozen women science fiction writers writing with regularity. And we tend to forget now. Now, by the way, this should also not be interpreted as some other people have interpreted as well. And therefore, women were equal partners all along. And this idea that women were shut out or there was any bias against them is completely false. And that's that's wrong, too. There's a reason why. Only 10% at the best uh, of, the, of the stories published were by women. Although I would, I would argue that 25% of what should be read in that era is by women. So that was the biggest thing I got out of the project. That and um, the funnest thing about Rediscovery is all of the stories are introduced by modern women writers who are on their way up. One of them had just done a TV show. Uh, one of them is Marie Vibbert, who uh, I think you just had an event at Loganberry Books. Um, there's Erica Friedman, who is going to, we're going to be doing her book next year. There's a lot of rising stars in there. And I like the context that's part of the bridging of the generations thing. That was exquisite. Actually, I cannot wait to, um, obviously we are, we have all of these books, including Rediscovery uh, on sale in store and online at Loganberry Books. And I can't wait to create kind of an additional display around that. Cause I think a lot of people will be interested and grabbing rediscovery as sort of like thinking about female science fiction writers pre-Le Guin and kind of like almost like her origin story and kind of just like putting her into context. So that was excellent. Thank you so much. Um, and just, um, just a quick note, next month, um, our next book is coming out and it's Sybil Sue Blue by Roselle George Brown, who has two stories in rediscovery. And it's the original women's space detective novel. So that's probably one you'll want to carry to and put it right next to rediscovery. Absolutely. So how do you get heard as an independent small press publisher? And really what I'm getting at is this interview that we're having right now. Tell us about how you cultivate a special relationship with independent bookstores. I'm sure I could come up with a really cool answer that makes me look like like the font of wisdom. Um, The answer is I call. I, I call. I'm a telemarketer. That, that has been my job the last two years. I call every bookstore in the United States and beyond and say, hi, this is who I am and this is why you want our books. And I recognize that folks like you get thousands of calls and millions of emails like that all the time. And so for anyone out there who is thinking of starting a small press or is a, is a self-publisher trying to make it, and, and mazel tov to you guys, you got to have a hook. You have to have a pitch. You will not get, you won't get anywhere if you just call and say, will you carry my book? The answer is going to be no. Um, and I got asked this question enough times. How did you do this? How did you, how did you get in 600 bookstores? And so I wrote about it because I believe in giving away knowledge for free. Rising tides floats all boats. And I want to see as much awesome writing out there as possible. So if you go to journeypress.com, we have an article series called The Path to Publishing. And we're actually up to nine articles right now. Um, And it's all about how to do a small press. Uh, And the last three articles are all about what to do when you're talking to bookstores. And I have to tell you, the reason why this has worked for me is I I happen to be an extrovert, which meant that 2020 was a terrible year for me. Um, I am an extrovert. I love meeting people. I love networking. And the reason why Journey Press sells 90% of its books through independent booksellers is because I love meeting people like you. You, you are the reason why I do this. This is super fun. And now I have 600 friends that I know on first name basis. And I just also happen to sell them books. Now, 
if someone asked me, well, how do you get your voice heard online? Because that's where the real money is and everybody wants to be an Amazon star. And the answer is what I have found is if you spend money on advertising, eventually you can spend enough money that you almost break even. From what I understand, I actually have a friend of mine who, who got rich in 2011 when you still could do it, when you could play the Amazon algorithm. Uh, he writes techno thrillers. Wonderful, wonderful guy. Um, I guess I can even tell you his name. Doug Richards. Buy Doug Richards books. He writes Michael Crichton style techno thrillers. Everybody loves him. And he's just the nicest guy in the universe. Um, and he gave me all of his information for free, too, which is why I give mine for free. And uh, he says that if you you can make money on Amazon, but you have to be one of the big publishers and you have to pump in like five figures of advertising every month to be at the top 10 or whatever. Otherwise, there's no point. You're just blowing your money. And these days, everybody is trying to sell their work. Everybody's going through Amazon. And that's fine. Go for it. But essentially, now it's a lottery ticket. Maybe you'll get lucky. Almost assuredly, you won't. Bookstores are, are the tortoise versus the hare. And I think that you also have to say that, you know, for those people out there trying to replicate your success is that you are persistent. As you know, because we talked about this before, um, I was in politics and conventional wisdom is you need to touch your voter three times to get a vote. Unless you're Al Franken, that's then it's a bad idea. <laughs> so, you know, it's three times like they've got to like see you come up in social media. you got to knock on the door. you got to send them a piece of mail. you got to show up at a school board meeting that they happen to have also attended. Three touches. you got to get three touches to get in a vote. I kind of feel like that's how it was with us. I saw your stuff and I was like, eh. And then I saw it again and I was like, I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> and then like the third time, like, and we talked and like you explained to me and you helped me to get it. Right. And then I'm like, okay, I'm in. And then I read the eighth key and then I was totally in. Right. But I mean, like, it's part, it's, it was your persistence in it. Like, you can't, you can't be milk toast in this business. But you also have to have some politics because the fact is you can be persistent. So apparently there, there's a press out there run by the, uh, the Dianetics people. And they're extremely persistent. And um, what's hilarious is I remember there was a store in Montana I called and the, and the bookseller there wouldn't give me the time of day. She was just extremely rude. And for about 20 seconds, she was just haranguing me. And then she said, wait a minute, you're not the Dianetics people, are you? I'm like, no. And they're like, because they have kind of a similar name. I'm like, no, that's, that's not us. We're, this, this is her there. She's like, I am so sorry. So which books are those again? We'll bring those into the store. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? You got through that conversation and you can't have thin skin to get through that conversation. You cannot. <laughs> So Gideon, um, you are a pleasure to talk to, but I also know that from what you do, you also must be tough as nails. That's what I think about you. <laughs> I, I cry when I get off the phone. My, my wife can attest to that. Okay. Um, we are, because this conversation has been so lovely, um, we're running long. Before we um, get out of here, tell the folks a little bit about Kitra. Talk to us about Kitra. <laughs> So in addition to being a publisher, I'm also a Journey Press customer. Last year, I released a book called Kitra, and it's our YA space adventure. And I released it on April 1st, 2020, which was an interesting time to release a book because there were other things going on in the world at the time. Um, we actually still did pretty well. 
So Kitra is the book I always wanted to read, but never found. I grew up reading what they called juveniles um, by Robert Heinlein, Andre Norton. These were books that were made for teens, but they were sophisticated. But they, what different, differentiated them from adult books is they tended to be positive and not too complicated, and, and the hero won out in the end. Um, but they were books everyone enjoyed because they weren't dumbed down. They, they were like the Oz books. They could appeal to everybody. But they always starred, you know, Whitey McWhite dude. And I wanted a book starring a queer woman. And part of the reason why I wrote a queer protagonist is they say, write what you know. Um, and I am flamingly bisexual and I've been out for about 10 years. I really wanted to write a story about uh, a woman exploring the stars with her friends. I like found family. And I'm also, I used to be an astrophysics major. I've been a teacher. And so it was a good way to, to be pedantic about science, but also incorporate it into a, a cool story. So that's what Keytra is. It's this fun space adventure. It's eventually going to be a 10 book series, but every book is going to stand alone. Um, I just finished the draft of the second book, Sirena, which will come out in September. And yeah, it's super fun. I, I love Keytra. So did I. So did I. I kind of like how it's um it's kind of a road trip too. It's sort of a road trip novel, and I'm a sucker for a road trip novel. <laughs> Wonderful. This I can't believe I've been talking for an hour. This is wait. I have to ask you, who was sure. your favorite character in Kitra? The main character. Oh, okay. Her? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she's great. She's wonderful. She's she's aspirational. You know what I mean? Like she's kind of the person that you wish that you could be. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay. Laura Gideon, thank you so much. And I and we'll talk again when the next book is out, okay? It was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Maisha. Loganberry Books is open to the public Tuesday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. You can order books from us at store.loganberrybooks.com. You can also order from us by calling the store directly at 216-795-9800 or by emailing books at logan.com with your specific requests. You can support us by purchasing through our affiliate pages on bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash loganberrybooks at loganberry.papertrail.com for digital ebooks or on libro.fm for all your audiobook needs. Join our listener support program where you can donate as little as 99 cents a month, less than $12 a year, to keep this podcast going. Go to our website at loganberrybooks.com, check our social media at loganberrybooks, and make sure to rate and subscribe to Lines from Loganberry and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Lines from Loganberry was produced and edited by Ted Hubish. As always, tune in next week for more bookish content from Loganberry Books. Thank you for listening.